Amen. All right, well, have a seat, and I hope you got a copy of the notes. You will need a copy of the notes. We are going to uh, use them pretty closely. And the topic tonight, or really the topic for this four-week series, is preaching the gospel to yourself. Now, let me say right up front that one of the things that I'm a little allergic to is a bit of an over-therapeutic age that we live in, where, uh, you know, I think sometimes we spend a little bit too much time looking within ourselves uh, when really we need to, at times, get over ourselves. And so I think that we, uh, we need to, as we launch into this four-week teaching on preaching the gospel to yourself, uh, rightly understand what this means and, and not uh, unwittingly slip into a kind of overly incessant or self-absorbed expression of the Christian life. Nevertheless, I think it is part of our duty to think deeply about the Christian life, to think deeply about our sanctification, and to think deeply and wisely um, and with fervency, with fear and trembling, to try and work out our salvation. And so it's in that vein, not in an overly self-absorbed, introspective, let me take pictures of myself reading the Bible and post it on Instagram every other day type of way, but rather in a, in a kind of looking at myself so that I can glorify God more deeply in my life and in community together with other Christians mode is what I am thinking of or the balance I'm wanting us to strike when I bring up this topic, preaching the gospel to yourself. Today, tonight, we're going to look at the topic of dealing with shame and guilt, but mostly shame. I think they're kind of interrelated. There's a little distinction we're going to talk about, dealing with shame. Next week, we're going to talk about the fear of man, um, and it's, it's somewhat related a little bit to what we're talking about tonight, but we're going to really zero in on dealing with the fear of man and how the gospel helps us with that. Then the third week, we're going to look at depression and how the gospel helps us combat our own hearts when we are depressed. And then fourth, the fourth week, we're going to look at uh, dealing with difficult relationships and boundaries and uh, this idea of, of uh, toxicity, which I think, again, can be uh, sort of weaponized and used in wrong ways. I want us to think about that biblically. But tonight, we're going to look at dealing with shame and guilt. Uh, this is, a, I think, a really important topic. Uh, and these four topics are born out of things that I see in my own life, in my own struggles with sanctification. And in almost 20 years now of pastoring this church, we will have been a church for 19 years coming up this April. And I've just at times thought about all the time that I spent having conversations with brothers and sisters in this church through almost two decades now, um, trying to help one another follow Jesus. And these topics seem to always kind of rise to the surface, and this is certainly one of them. So first... Let's make sure we understand what shame is uh, theologically, biblically, before we, we really talk about dealing with shame. The first thing that I want to say is that the scriptures speak about shame a lot, especially the Psalms. I'll just kind of throw a couple of scriptures up there. I don't have them written on your sheet, but uh, just, I mean, there are, 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 are dozens and dozens of, of, of references to shame just in the Psalms, but let me give you a few. Here's Psalm 22, verse 5. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Psalm 25, verse 2. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. 25, uh, Verse 20, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. 
Psalm 31.1, and then also verse 17. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. And then verse 17, Psalm 31. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. But let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. And that's just four or five verses. Uh, if you just do a search, a concordance search on shame, you will be really, I think, uh, uh, amazed at how often that word or the concept shows up in all of the Bible. In fact, I read this book and listened to this curriculum on shame to, uh, to kind of prepare for this. It's a, sh- a book by a, a really a faithful counselor in Philadelphia. His name is Ed Welch, and he has a book called Shame Interrupted, which I uh, would recommend to you. But he says that, in, in, that really shame is so central that it is the fundamental description of humanity before the fall. In fact, it's the last description of humanity before the fall. Think about Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 25. I don't know if we have it up on the screen. Genesis 2, verse 25 talks about Adam and Eve after they've been made by God, and they're in the garden, and this is before Genesis chapter 3, which begins in the next verse in the fall that then plunges us all into ruin. And what's the description of mankind in this happy estate in creation before the fall? It says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So it's the, it's the last and most maybe fundamental description of the, of the freedom of humanity before God and before one another. So the scripture speaks about it a lot. Therefore, letter C there under A, we should not be ashamed to talk about shame. And this is a point that I want to bring up maybe a little bit later on, is that uh, when I say we should not be ashamed to talk about shame, I want to again strike a balance there. There can be a way we can tilt over into a kind of incessant self-absorption and introspection, which I think can be unhelpful and almost too indulgent. But I also see another uh, error that sometimes we make, which I think is sort of surfacing. There's a kind of, um, I think, a reaction, a right reaction to the self-absorption of our age, which is almost overcompensating with a kind of Christian bravado that we're starting to see in some streams that I think overreaches and acts as if uh, this isn't something that really needs to be dealt with. And in fact, uh, I think when you kind of over bravado or beat chest the Christian life a little too much or talk about sanctification in ways that are one are, are sort of just slivers of sanctification and not the full orb of how we need to deal with this, it can, I think, kind of hinder our ability to actually deal with the brokenness inside of us because as a reaction to the self-indulgent Christianity that might be prevalent in our age, we can overreact into a kind of hyper-tough guy Christianity that I think undercuts our ability to wisely dissect and deal with our own hearts with the gospel. So all that to say we should not be ashamed to talk about shame. Let her be there. How, how guilt and shame differed. I want to kind of whittle down now into just sort of analyzing shame and thinking about it from a biblical perspective and just in our own hearts. Uh, guilt, think of guilt. Think, I, w- I want to distinguish here between guilt and shame, and I realize that they're used as synonyms quite a bit, for the purposes, but for the purposes of our 
look at shame and dealing with the deeper parts of our heart with the gospel, I want to distinguish a little bit between guilt and shame. Guilt has more to do with with what we do. Uh, We've sinned, and we need forgiveness. When you think about guilt, think think about a courtroom, and we have several judges and attorneys here in uh, the congregation. And think about a courtroom, and you have committed an offense, and there's one gaze that matters, there's one decision that matters, there's one verdict that matters, and it's the judges. You're legally liable for a sin, and you need acquittal, you need justification. And we all, I think, very easily understand that scenario And that's where the beauty of the doctrine of justification comes in. And we realize that our guilt, our offense before God, is handled by what Jesus has done on the cross. He absorbs our punishment, and he gives us his righteousness, and we are are justified. We are acquitted. But that's guilt, but there's something a little bit deeper that sets into our hearts as a result of sin and the fall that I think I want to distinguish a little bit from guilt, and it's this deeper aspect of the consequences of sin, which is not just the fact that we need forgiveness over what we've done, but we need our shame to be covered. We need to be we need to be renewed in who we are. And that's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt, think of it as more about what we do, sin that needs to be forgiven. But shame has to do more with now who we have begun to see ourselves, who we are, who, how we define ourselves as a result of our sin. So while guilt, the scene or the setting for guilt is the courtroom and the judge and the legal transaction of forgiveness, shame actually goes deeper than that. The, the scene for shame is not just the courtroom with the judge, but it's, it's the public square. Now, you're not just, now it's not just the eyes of the Lord on you, but really all the people around you. And now sin isn't just something that you have done that you need forgiveness, but it becomes the defining reality of your life and Shame goes deeper. We don't just need acquittal for our sin, but we need covering for our shame. Some of the ways that the Bible speaks about shame, uh, in the Old Testament especially, it talks about banishment, that, that Israel and its sin, or even Adam and Eve, need to be banished from God's presence. It's a shame. It's a public shaming. You have to leave. Poverty, lack, oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, the destitute, those that are needy, are shameful. They, they have nothing. They're poor in spirit, obviously in possession, but poor in spirit. They're naked. The naked are shameful because of their nakedness. And then maybe most prominent, the most prominent uh, expression of shame that we see laced all throughout the Bible is this idea, uh, idea of uncleanness. So, so sin isn't just something that the sinner does, but then it becomes the thing that the sinner is. The leper is unclean. They are banished. They have nothing. They're separated from the community, and their identity now takes on the reality of their sin. And this is, the, this is how shame, in a sense, is actually the next deeper step 
beyond guilt, it becomes an identity. And so in a sense, I want to say that it takes more work for us to deal with shame that can root itself deep down in our hearts. Okay, let us see some aspects of shame. And again, we could spend a lot of time thinking about this, but just for the sake of time, let me just kind of share with you some things that I learned in this study and reading this book and listening to Ed Welch and then just some own, my own meditation. The origins of shame, what can make shame so, so difficult is that its origins can be two-pronged. It's not only our sin that causes us shame, but it's also sin against us, maybe in a very violent way. And I know there are people in this church who, all of us to some degree, to one degree or another, have been sinned against. But there are particular kinds of sin. I'm thinking of uh, abuse, whether emotional or spiritual or physical or sexual, that can be committed against a person, that, that can create in a person deep, deep, deep feelings of shame that cause absolute havoc on their soul. And so in shame, we're not just dealing with the things that we've done, but the things that have been done to us, and we're all kind of a mixture of that, that can produce in us a kind of identity of shame. The other thing about shame is, is that it, it grows. Shame, shame is not stagnant. Shame, you know that, that old saying, time heals all wounds? I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true, necessarily. I mean, some maybe, but not all. The thing about shame is it grows over time and it deepens in darkness. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute on, on, under letter E there, but, but shame never just sits still. It doesn't just kind of put itself in a piece of Tupperware in the back corner of the pantry of your heart, it grows, and it, it grows slowly, and it grows in a submerged way so that often you're not aware of it, and it can root itself deep down in the heart and mind of a person. It grows, grows and deepens, and oftentimes it grows very quietly and not loudly. Let her see there. It demands and dominates identity and behavior. And again, shame is insidious. Shame is cloaked. Shame moves, is patient to move slowly. And so we don't necessarily feel this happening to us. It's like a riptide that we can't see, but it begins to carry us to places in our behaviors and in how we see ourselves slowly but surely. And before we know it, it is dominating our sense of who we are, and it is dominating our behavior. That's how insidious shame can be. I think about the person who, um, you know, maybe uh, is, 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 is trying to protect himself in some way, and they don't even realize it, and, and they're just dominated by uh, a sense of wanting to cover this. Let me give a personal example. Uh, ironically enough, <laughs> you guys may chuckle at this, but I, I still deal with this, and you, and you, think, you probably think I'm, I'm just saying this for some sort of teaching effect. I'm not. I have struggle, struggled with deep, deep, deep fear of public speaking in my life. 
When I was in the third or fourth grade, um, I uh, had to get up and read something in my little church that my parents were going to. It wasn't really a Bible-believing church, but I had to get up and read something for, like, you know, Kid Sunday or something. And up to that point, I was um, very boisterous, very outgoing in class, all the time volunteering. Um, and something happened to me in that moment where I just kind of felt fear. And, and I was, I mean, I, I sauntered up to this pulpit in this liberal church in El Centro, California. It's kind of one of these historic churches, and, uh, and you kind of had a, like a high pulpit. I sauntered up there like a you know, confident little kid, and then I opened up the little thing that I needed to read, and I looked out over the crowd, and something hit me, and I didn't just stumble through it. I crashed and burned. I mean, I folded up like a napkin, and it was terrifying. And that experience produced in me such shame and then such a desire to avoid that ever happening to me again that all the way through high school, I can remember when I would walk into a class at the first day of the semester, I would intentionally try and choose a seat closest to the door just in case I got called on to speak or read or something and it happened again and I wanted to be able to run out of the classroom as soon as possible. Now, I compensated, I overcame it in various ways, but it wreaked havoc on my soul. In fact, 19 years ago on April 17th, 2005, on the first Sunday that we planted Crosspoint, I remember feeling that same sense of possible exposure and shame come over me, and I had a thought right before I walked out onto the stage for the first sermon of Crosspoint, at the old Mountain Hill schoolhouse, and I can remember thinking that there's the door. If I need to run out the door, that's where it is. And isn't that silly? But you can see how, now this is, and we're going to talk about easy sins to confess and harder sins to confess, but the point what I'm trying to make here is that shame in ways that we often are not aware can become dominant. It can become like a rudder underneath the water that steers us and we really don't even realize it because we spend all of this energy avoiding the shame that we felt that one time. And that's a powerful thing in the life, I think on some level, of everybody because we all experience shame. And then sin, as, as shame, letter D, it sends us down two false roads. And I've, got, I've gotten into this. I've kind of alluded to this in just the way I reacted to uh, a aspect, a very easy-to-confess aspect of shame, and there are much harder aspects. I want to be clear about that in my life. I mean, nobody, nobody's going to, nobody's, when I share, I share, and this is really important, when I share that story about shame that I felt as a child, none of you are like, <gasps> nobody recoils at that, even though I felt a lot of shame. But the, the, the real hard aspects of shame are the aspects of, of our life that we all have that if I shared with you, you would be like, Oh, okay, that's where shame really does its deep work in our, our lives in a negative way. But it sends us down two false roads. And I've, I've, I've kind of gotten into this from that little story. It sends us into either protection from exposure, where we're spending all of this energy to ensure that that thing never happens to us again. We, you know, maybe it's some embarrassing thing about you and you... You spend, almost subconsciously, 
you just know how to steer the conversation away from that ever happening again. And that's just a social thing. Maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe you were hurt by some person and it just wreaks havoc on your ability to just be, be, be vulnerable about that person. But we protect, so we, it, it, protection from exposure often expresses itself in withdrawal. So, so when you're withdrawing from, from whatever that situation is, think about all the, the good fruit that's lost, about the harvest that's not reaped because you're withdrawing, or... Other personalities, instead of withdrawing, they will overcompensate and to, to, to sort of hide. There's kind of two ways of hiding. One way of hiding is to go back in the shadows. Another way of hiding is to overcompensate and dominate and just divert by the force of your personality, a kind of diversion. So you're just sort of, you're just overwhelming everybody and you just, you're just protecting yourself and what's underneath sometimes that dominant Type A personality can be you're really hiding behind kind of your social gifts or your charisma uh, because you're steering things away from, from how you want to be protected from being exposed or shamed. And so you see how those two false rows, you see a shy person that, can't, that, just, that, that just, just seems so timid and somebody else who just is like a bull in a china shop sometimes, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying those two things and personalities are necessarily bad, but they can't, just, those are two ways that people can actually be two, two, two barns that are just painted a different color, but they're doing the same thing. They're covering shame. And here's the deal is that shame, this is what I was getting to earlier when I talked about a socially acceptable thing. Shame hides in the darkness behind acceptable public confession and humility. What do I mean by that? Very early on, and this is a subconscious thing that I think we all just sort of know as humans. Very early on, we all understand what is socially acceptable and not socially acceptable. And that even pertains to what we can confess and repent of publicly. And so it's almost, it's like we don't even, we do it in an unthinking way. There's kind of sins that are socially acceptable to talk about and confess. In fact, uh, this really wonderful author, I think his name is Jerry Bridges. I believe he passed away a few years ago, but he wrote a wonderful little book called Respectable Sins. Is anybody familiar with that book? I think it touches on this. Um, that there's this kind of category of socially acceptable sins, but we all know that there's things that are not as socially acceptable to confess, right? And here's how it works. Here's how these two things, here's how deceptive and here's how insidious shame can be, is that shame actually feeds on the positive feedback we get from seeming humble by publicly confessing socially acceptable sins. I just did it to you just a second ago when I talked about being scared of public reading you know, or public speaking. And you're like, oh, oh, really? Really, Brad? Really? Oh, but that's okay. But there are socially unacceptable things that I'm ashamed of that I am not comfortable, and there's a lot of wisdom in that, not comfortable in sharing with you in this way. But do you see what I'm, the point I'm making is that an insidious way that shame works in the human heart is that we all understand these categories of socially acceptable confession and repentance and contrition and humility and then things that we know we can't really speak about publicly. 
And the positive feedback that we get from being socially, acceptably humble and repentant is something that we can hide behind and we deceive ourselves so much that we actually think, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty humble person. And we get this feedback like, wow, you're able to say that. And, 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 And we then sort of give ourselves a pass for the deeper things that need to be dealt in in our heart because we seem to sort of, and I think this is all happening on a subconscious level, we're just sort of tricking ourselves into think that we're actually pretty humble, honest people before God and his people. Now again, there's wise ways to confess and not confess. I'm, I'm going to get into that in just a second. But do you see how, how shame can be so deep-rooted that it actually gets underneath that and it becomes, uh, it actually works on a kind of faux humility that we, that we sort of garner for ourselves by confessing to socially acceptable sins. I hope that made sense. I think that's really important. Okay, now let's flip the page and dealing with shame, and then we'll maybe open it up and make comments, questions, or pray for one another. I know this is not one of the things that necessarily we're going to talk about maybe as openly uh, for good reasons um, in a large group. Dealing with shame. Now, there's no magic bullet here. Um, there's just no magic bullet. Uh, it's just slow, gritty application of the grace of the gospel. Uh, first, I want to say, I want to give some encouragement uh, that the presence of shame, which I think certainly on some level exists in the heart of every Christian, but I, I'm, I'm more interested here in people who are real, whose lives are really being, really being disrupted um, by shame, really being a toss to and fro by shame. The presence of shame in your life is likely a good indicator of your actual regeneration. Shame is often an indicator, is likely an indicator of the fact that you really are alive to the Lord and that you are aware of your guilt, aware of your need for the covering of Christ. And even though you're maybe not dealing with it in a healthy way, it's evidence of the sensitivity of your, the conviction that you feel and even the feelings of condemnation that you feel from the enemy, which are not from the Lord, but from the enemy, conviction and condemnation are two different things. Those are indicators, oftentimes, of the trueness of your salvation. So I wanted to say that as an encouragement to a person who really may be in the throes of, of shame. Secondly, every Christian limps into heaven to one degree or another. Uh, beware of unrealistic views of sanctification. Yes, there is a balance. I'm not saying that there's not victory uh, over sin, and I'm not saying that there isn't a sense in which Christians can certainly be free of things. Um, even though we're never totally free of things, there is a way of, of, of taking God's side against your sin and walking in, in power and strength against that. That certainly is possible for the Christian, and many people in this church and in this room are experiencing very de- varying degrees of that victory. But, but even the most sanctified among us, uh, I think, fit the description of ultimately they will limp into heaven. And we're going to talk about church culture here in a second, but one of the things that really needs to be important in a church culture is that Christians need to be okay with limping in front of other people and communicating that in a, in a kind of grace-filled way in the life of a church. And then the last encouragement would be that God promises 
God know this, as we talk about here in just a minute about sanctification and dealing with shame, God promises to finish the work in us and does not give up on any of his children. And even though all of us limp to death or to Christ's return, all of us will be fully glorified. That's a promise of the gospel. So be encouraged by that. You will die to some degree still dealing with shame, but there will be a day when it will be no more. Letter B there, be, be aware of another just a, a kind of so three encouragements and then just kind of a warning. Be aware of the trap of superficial transactions with grace. And this gets into what I just spoke about, kind of this, obvious, this sort of socially acceptable um, repentance or, um, you know, just kind, of, just kind of superficially applying the gospel. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, um, talked about cheap grace versus costly grace. And cheap grace often feeds and deepens shame in ways that we just talked about, that we just sort of, you know, superficially apply the gospel through maybe just, you know, continual repentance and just knowing that God's going to forgive us. Well, at some point, the Bible speaks very seriously about us if we just continue to give ourselves over and we don't do the deep work in our hearts that maybe we're really deceiving ourselves. And so I want us to be aware of superficial superficial transactions with the gospel and not actually spending time to think deeply about our hearts and then honestly and wisely bringing them before the Lord and trusted brothers and sisters. So what does Jesus offer the ashamed or the shameful? Uh, notice the four things. If you go to, to flip back to the first page, you notice the way the Bible speaks about shame when we talked about defining shame, banishment, Poverty, nakedness, uncleanness. Well, in the gospel, to those that are banished, think about it, this is so much deeper than just the forgiveness of sins or, recon- or just the guilty sins. Just think, about, think about the difference between a courtroom and then think about what Jesus does for our souls in the whole public, so just before everything. The banished are reconciled. The, the poor in spirit Receive all of the blessing of God, the inheritance of the gospel. Those that are naked have more than just their sins forgiven, but they're covered with with Christ's righteousness. And those that are unclean are made holy. So they're not just cured. They're not just their, 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 their leprosy. Their uncleanness isn't just washed away, the sin taken away, but the positive giving of holiness and righteousness is ours in the gospel. So look at the way the four ways that the Bible speaks about shame, and then the ways that Jesus answers all of those biblical descriptions of the shameful, reconciled, blessed, and I'm not talking about earthly material blessings, we're talking obviously about spiritual blessings, covering and holiness. So some steps to take, and again, there are no shortcuts, and these three trajectories may be a little cheesy and oversimplified, but I'm just trying to put a couple handlebars in your, in your toolkit that you can hang on to. And I sort of see three trajectories of dealing with shame, and they may seem sort of elementary, 
but I think good theology is accessible theology, and it must be practical. I think, I think the best theology is taken, it's, it's, it's cookies on the bottom shelf. The best theology is a type of theology that all of God's people can access and eat. And so there's nothing overly complicated. Even though our hearts are amazingly complicated and deceitful, there's nothing overly complicated about the steps of applying the gospel to your heart and to your shame. So three trajectories. The first is, again, it may seem very simple, but I think it's a necessary first step that we often miss, is to look inside your heart honestly. Now, I'm not talking about look within yourself. You know, it's not, I'm not caught up in a Whitney Houston song right now. Like, I've found the greatest love of all inside of me. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in an introspective way. Like, look, look, like spend time considering yourself. And one of the things that I think is a challenge of our age is we are so busy, we're so busy papering over our shame with whatever, social media, connectedness. I mean, it's, isn't it ironic that of all of the devices that help us be connected, we're actually the most disconnected people maybe in the history of culture? But we, we, we scurry around, we're like, we're like lab rats on cocaine, and that's part of the spiritual battle that we find. And we just can't, we can't sit still without looking at our phones or acting busy or whatever. It's, it's the great fight of our age. The spirit of our age is anxiety and busyness. And it's to keep us from actually having the courage to sit with ourselves for a second and be honest with ourselves about who we are. And that's major, man. That is major. Uh, I mean, this is, this. Uh, friends, we all can do this. I can do this. I can move on to the next task, and I can paper over my shame by moving on to the next ministry task, and it is very easy to justify that because I've got something to do, and I just don't want to sit and look at myself and assess my heart and my shame and my embarrassment and my feelings of failure before the Lord, and so I move on to the next thing. And on some level, we all do that. An example from, again, my own life is I see something maybe in my ministry or my life that causes me pain. Uh, my first instinct is often to go do something else that will make me feel better about myself. And what is that? That is works-based righteousness. Instead of dealing with my lack of righteousness and my shame and my, 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 my feelings of inadequacy, I try and soothe them not with the sacraments like a Catholic, but with my own Protestant sacraments of duty to make myself feel good and forget about the pain I feel by actually sitting and looking at myself for a second. And we dog Catholics out for their sacraments, but we have our own sacraments, don't we? And we just, I think part of it is we need to have the courage to actually look inside our hearts honestly and friends, this takes time. There's no, again, there's no magic eight ball to this. It's just time to pray, to meditate on God's word. I'm thinking of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Uh, Search me and know my heart, O Lord. See if there's any wicked way in me. 
And obviously implicit in that text is that God, God will show you. Is you. Lord, help me see myself rightly. I know we always talk about, you know, going to the Lord, going to the Lord. Yes, but like the first step of going to the Lord is sitting with yourself for a minute and actually honestly assessing your own heart. Gosh, I could say more about that. But, but, but I think that is we are allergic to that because we are such busy people. Secondly is to look up to the Lord and to so you don't stay there. And this is where I think that this is where a kind of indulgence, you know, we don't just stay there because when you, you do look at yourself and you see yourself rightly, what can, what can actually happen is if you sort of stare at your shame for a minute, it act, you have to be careful to not sit with it because it can overtake you. And here's the movements of our soul. Instead of, instead of running from that thing and acting busy to make ourselves feel righteous, we also have to be aware of the other ditch we can fall into. If we sit with ourselves and assess our own shame, what it can do is it can cause us such despair that then we internally beat ourselves up and we actually sort of make ourselves feel righteous by our deep woes me attitude. It's like the desert fathers that were upset about the excesses of the church of Rome in the early centuries and they went outside and they, they beat themselves as a way of kind of like self mutilating themselves to make themselves feel better. And, and, and so you can't stay just, the, the, you can't just stay looking at yourself. You have to come out of that and say, now Lord, okay, Lord, what does the gospel say to my shame? And friends, this is where, like, come on, if you're part of a good church that preaches the gospel from the scriptures, you are armed with enough gospel to use the sword of the Spirit against your own heart. You are. You don't need a PhD in theology. You don't need, you know, some trained um, whatever. You, you, don't, you don't need professional. You, you have, those things can be good. But you have the gospel. And if you will slow down and listen, and if we will discipline ourselves, we have enough of the gospel to use it on our own hearts and to apply it to our hearts. So look up to the Lord and dwell on the grace of the gospel. What has Jesus done with my sin? He's taken it on the cross. I mean, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, he has, he has triumphed over all of my sin and the handwriting of requirements that was against me, and he has put that to open shame. That's the gospel. And he's given me his righteousness. And even though I don't feel like these things are true of my life, the Bible says it's true, and the Bible is way truer than my feelings. And I don't know any other way, friends. This is all I got for you. You may be saying, Brad, I was hoping it would be a little bit more complex and complicated. I just don't think it is. But it's, it's just bringing your life underneath the simple truths of the gospel, and saying, this is the way I feel, but this is what the Bible says. I'm making a decision to confess that that is truer than the way I feel. Because it, you know, you actually, you almost, we diminish the complexity of the human soul by not admitting the gap between the way we feel and what God says about us. And you can actually kind of like, you, you can subvert it. You, do you understand what I'm saying? Is you can, uh, you kind of, I'm not, applying the gospel to your, not as, applying the gospel to your shame in your heart is not 
you checking your brain at the door and saying, this is what the Bible believes and this is the only option for me to, this is, then I must feel. No, it's saying, it's just admitting and confessing that what the Bible says is truer than the way I feel. And admitting that there's a gap and part, the reason you have the, that gap is because you're human. I think that's important. I think that's important. And, 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 and not just doing that one time. Not just doing that one time. Because you have to do that over and over and over and over again. And what does that mean? You've got to be part of a good church and you've got to prioritize it and be around other Christians and hear good preaching and you know, read good materials and just rehearsing that gospel. And this is what sanctification is, is that over time, what the Bible says is true and the way I feel, the gap between those two things and my shame as I just put myself underneath the fountain of remembering, rehearsing, renewing the gospel in my heart, over time, slowly, over time, that gap begins to shorten, and I have more perspective. It's not that my shame is gone. It's not that I don't have to keep fighting against it. It's like whack-a-mole. You have to keep fighting against it. But this is Christian maturity. What God says and the way I feel starts to align more and more. And then something happens to us later in life, even though we're mature, and the gap may widen again. And so you get back up on your horse and you fight again. This is the Christian life. That's the part of looking up. And then looking around for a trusted, mature believer to process with. Not necessarily an expert, although experts are great. But I just want to commend the regular means of grace that God has given. And so this is where I'm saying that for those of us, and on some level this may be all of us at various times in our lives, for those of us that are dealing with really, you know, remember I talked about publicly acceptable things we can confess? And then the socially unacceptable things that we confess that we knew that if we did, we would probably be, you know, it would, it would maybe ostracize us or it'd just be hard. If... If, if those things are wreaking havoc on your, if, there's, if those things exist in your life, I cannot say this strongly enough. You have to have, I'm not saying get up in church on a Wednesday night or in your community group and spill the beans in a way that would be harmful. There can be unwise ways to actually be honest. Does that make sense? But you, you must, you, you, it is a necessity that you're able to find a trusted friend who you can really say, I have to be able to tell you anything and you will not wince. That is so important. And the thing is, is this is the way, this is the beauty of the body of Christ. Oftentimes, what you don't need is not necessarily, what you often need is just a wise, mature soul that won't necessarily have some really trained clinical answer on now what you must do but what we need to hear is, okay, that's what you're dealing with. That's what happened to you. That's what you did. That's what you're doing. But just a person to hear it, absorb the shock, not wince, and say, okay, but Jesus loves you, and you are forgiven. He loves you. And that is a, that's a, the Lord uses the body of Christ to apply the gospel to our hearts in ways that we often can't apply to our own hearts. And so I just want to say that if you are dealing with some deep-seated shame on anybody, I mean, we all need people that we can confess sins to and deal with things, but if, 
especially if there's really things that are wreaking havoc on your life, um, you need a trusted, mature believer to process with on occasion. Okay, uh, just real quick, some scriptures for dealing with shame. Um, I think these kind of parallel the steps above, but Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, I'd love for you to read that. I'm not going to take the time to read that today. I'm, I got Hebrews on my mind. You might be thinking, Brad, is, is Hebrews about, no, I, I just have Hebrews on my mind. There's a lot of v- verses in, about shame, but just, just read through Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Let me just read a couple of verses. Think about this. For it was fitting, Hebrews 2, verse 10, for it was fitting for that he from whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the foundation, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Listen to this. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all are, are sanctified all have one source. That is why, you remember this a couple months ago? I, got, I, just got, just, I just couldn't get enough of this. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So that's speaking about Jesus. And then it quotes Psalm 22 I will say, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So basically what this section of scripture is saying is it's taking Psalm 22, which is verse 12 and 13, which is David singing to the Lord on behalf of Israel. It's putting it in the mouths of Jesus. And it's saying that in the gospel, Jesus came down out of heaven, got in the muck and the mire of humanity, sanctified, saved, justified us, and then puts his arm around us and sings back to God, saying to God, I'm not ashamed to call these people who I have justified and reconciled, these ashamed ones, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And so I will tell we, we, verse 12, we will tell, I will tell of your name to my brothers. So this is, this is, Jesus, down in the, the mosh pit of humanity, putting his arms around us in the incarnation, singing back to the, God, back to the Father, saying, these are my people. That's glorious. Jesus takes on our shame and then puts his arms around us and says, I am not ashamed. And that's just beauty. That's just beauty. And then Hebrews chapter 12, real quick, and then we're going to end this. I'm, I'm done here. Hebrews 12, Um, we just went over this. Looking to Jesus, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. So Jesus took on the shame of the cross, the, the embarrassment, the deep shame of the cross in ways that we can only imagine. He identifies with us. He takes on our shame, and he covers our shame through his work on the cross. So consider him. Verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And then I won't get into Hebrews chapter 13, but I want you to read Luke chapter 17 and Luke chapter 8 about these two women who were suffering shame. One was a sinful woman, uh, a woman of the night, a prostitute. And then Luke chapter 8 is about the woman who with the issue of blood, and they came to Jesus, shameful women. They, they went to Jesus. They go to Jesus. They didn't sit with their shame. They go to Jesus. So they looked inside, they looked up, and they found Christ, and they found community. Okay, let me pause, let me stop there um, for just a few minutes and ask if there's any questions, comments. Um, I know this may be a difficult subject to just say, hey, what do you think about this? Or, you know, but let's wisely um, and maybe concisely, if there's any questions before I pray. Anybody have any thoughts, comments, reactions, questions?
If you don't, that's okay, we'll pray. You can go to the microphone if you got anybody got anything? I'm not ashamed to wait for a minute or two if anybody has anything. Going once, going twice. Okay, well, listen, um, <clears throat> I want to pray here in just a second, but I also just want to reiterate a plea. Um, I, think this, I think this bears on every Christian heart. And I want to say that um, part of why it's so important for us to talk about these things is to make it not taboo to talk about shame. And I pray that every member of Crosspoint, uh, wherever they may be with the Lord and with their own shame, would be helped maybe through this teaching or other just preaching teachings of the gospel, classes, sermons, small groups, Bible studies, that we would create a culture um, where the gospel is not just sort of a veneer on the surface, but it actually gets underneath into these parts of our heart that we may not even be aware of to where we don't have to submerge our shame, but we actually apply the gospel to it. So I pray this has been helpful. Let me pray, and um, I'll stick around and talk to you one-on-one if you want. Lord, uh, thank you for the great truth that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. It's amazing. He doesn't just deal with our guilt in the courtroom. He doesn't just take our sentence for us. He actually removes our shame. He doesn't just take away the sentence of punishment. He covers our shame. And he fills in the potholes that shame has dug in our hearts with grace and righteousness and joy. Lord, I know that uh, on some level all of us deal with shame. May anything that I've spoken tonight that's been true stick fast to our hearts and help us deal rightly with shame. If there's anything that I've said that's not been right or unhelpful, let it fall to the ground and be forgotten. Lord, may we be people that even though we limp into heaven, uh, we limp with, with arms that are holding on to all that you have for us, wanting more of your grace now so that we might bring more glory to you now so that we might experience more reward and joy forever with you. I pray that you would go with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, friends, brothers and sisters. We'll see you this Sunday, next Wednesday as well.